Hi everyone. I want to thank you all so much for hanging with me throughout this drug courier odyssey. We're almost home. Yes. Now, I-84 turns completely south away from Idaho to merge with Utah's biggest interstate, I-15, which goes north and south. Interstate 15 will glide us and our load south down to Salt Lake City. Before we get to Salt Lake City, we have to first drive through the death zone. Sometimes I think driving our load through the triangle is like living in a video game. There's always some trap or hazard to get through before you make it to the next level. In my past episodes, I've talked a lot about the cultures and people who live along the path of the triangle that we drove. I've also alluded to my Mormon roots. Today, I'm going to tell you about Utah's Interstate 15, which in turn will tell you a lot about what Mormons are like. I should know, I was one for over 40 years. And because Utah is around 65% Mormon, they're the main ones driving on Interstate 15. Remember when I told you we never, ever drove over the speed limits when we had a load in the back? Well, we're gonna take a big U-turn on that philosophy driving on Interstate 15. Why would we do that? Because Utahns drive I-15 like a herd of woolly mammoths stampeding off the cliff of extinction. The speed limit on I-15 from the northern border of the state to Salt Lake City vacillates anywhere from 75 miles per hour to 65 miles per hour. But Utahns don't pay those suggestions any mind because they have places to go and shit to do. In other words, they're very important people who can't be wasting their precious time obeying stupido laws like speed limits. I know because I'm one of those people. <laughs> when I'm not driving weed, my mantra is basically lead, follow, or get the hell out of my way. When Bob's not driving weed, his mantra is I lead no matter what. Bob and my oldest son both drive like gladiators fighting to the death for the front position. If you were to ask me what's the average speed on the northern portion of I-15, I would say about 80 miles per hour to 90. If a driver is going the speed limit, or say like we drive, uh, one or two miles under the speed limit, that would put us on the freeway driving the load at approximately 63 miles per hour if the limit is 65 miles per hour or 73 miles per hour if the speed limit is 75. That kind of speed on I-15 is first of all dangerous because the pack is going at least 80 miles per hour. The majority of the pack is going 85 miles per hour and about 20% is going 90. Second of all, going turtle slow citizen cop speed draws a lot of attention to yourself from irate drivers and then cops. Birds and insects fly in swarms, fish swim in schools, and cars drive in convoys or packs. There's no place for beat of a different drum crap here. If the point of the journey is to not get caught hauling weed, then it's best to stay anonymous. 
do not draw attention to yourself or the load. Discussing it at length after our first trip, Bob just felt too vulnerable driving so much more slowly than everybody else. He wanted to be anonymous and blend in with the flow, so we made a decision to go with the pack on I-15 and drive at least 80 miles per hour or faster, depending on the flow of that day. That was pretty scary on so many levels because who's to say when the bi-weekly day comes that the state is running low on money? So they send an army of tax collector cops out to ransom road tolls on that particular day we're driving the load on I-15. You've seen the setup. They've got their three to five motorcycle cops staggered along the interstate pulling drivers over. Drivers who thought they made it after passing the first set of flashing lights with some schmuck on the shoulder, not knowing there really was two or three more cuts coming up. We simply couldn't afford to ever even get stopped for a minor traffic violation, not with a hundred pound load in the back. This hour and a half long drive from the merging of I-84 and I-15 down to Salt Lake City was like Mr. Toad's wild ride at Disneyland. It was fast, furious, and grueling. Heaven forbid we got in a wreck so close to home. This was a part of the trip where Bob was the most fatigued but required the sharpest mental awareness as he sped along, driving fast yet extra defensively. His eyes darted everywhere, in the rear view mirror, side mirrors, beside him, beside me, in front of the car, and in the blind spots. Utahns are a bit like Californians. They don't like to leave a lot of space between cars for mannerless sociopaths who take cuts. None of this 10 feet length between cars per each 10 mile per hour is your traveling kind of driver's ed safety crap. This is the Zen driving through the death zone video game. The stakes are high and it ain't no virtual game. There is a lot of unexpected braking and weaving in and out of lanes. I have always wondered why is it that Utahns drive so damn fast? I mean, I drive fast. What is it about us Utahns? I know what it is about me, why I drive fast, particularly when I was younger. When I was younger, I was arrogant, entitled, and a righteous Latter-day Saint who really had more important things to do than wait around on geriatric drag racing. <laughs> I mean, God loves everyone, even NASCAR grandpas, but excuse me, I need to pass now, move along, or move the hell over. Thank you so much. <laughs> So condescending and obnoxious. <laughs> you would have hated me if you'd known me when I was an active Mormon. I hate me when I was an active Mormon. <laughs> I also think there's another reason I drove fast. There was no accountability. No one could ever really see or even disapprove of me as I drove fast or rudely. You take your chances when you speed, but the odds are pretty good you're not going to get caught. My family of origin had an unspoken creed that we lived religiously, and it was looking good, looking good. It didn't matter if we were good, we just needed to look good, 
If there wasn't anybody there to monitor our actions, we could, you know, fudge or do whatever the hell we wanted to do. When I was an active Mormon, I had to go through two ecclesiastical worthiness interviews every year. All Mormons do. I think they changed it to two years now. I don't know. I'm not active anymore. Well, they always wanted to know if I'd been sleeping around or if I was honest with my fellow man. There was never any questions of, do you obey the speed limits of this country, Sister Benson? Because the answer would have been, hell no, Bishop. I got meetings to attend and service to perform for my fellow man. And he'd be like, oh, well then, that's okay, Sister Benson. Carry on. Godspeed. <laughs> if we're not being policed on most issues, especially the ones on sex, to be sure, all humans are kind of gray and cagey to an extent, but I've seen that caginess dynamic. It's a lot stronger in the religious stereotypes, mainly because stereotype Mormons are required to live so meagerly, so austerely, they're not allowed to indulge in much, and any little thing they can do, like breaking out to go full on to speed, well, it's a type of blowing off steam. I also think that the way a person drives says a lot about their personality and character. Not that I even think that speeding is a sin. I mean, speeding, I guess you could say, is cheating or reckless. But really, I think people who speed have a lot bigger character flaws than being cheats or being reckless. Speeding is a lot more of the manifestation of arrogance. Arrogant people speed. They push the little people aside to get ahead. Chronic speeding is a giant red flag of an arrogant person. For all these deep-seated psychological reasons, the state of Utah has all these pent-up arrogant Mormons driving on I-15. They drive just like I used to drive when I was a Mormon. Now, since I left the religious life, I'm not a card-carrying Mormon anymore. I still drive like a lunatic because nothing's really changed. I'm still an important and entitled person, and it's just an ingrained habit in me. Old people can't change. That's a proven fact. It's not my fault that the Mormons ingrained in me that I'm better than everybody else and I can speed. my superb logical and existential discussion today on why Mormons drive like their ass cracks are on fire. <laughs> so where were we before I went down that rabbit hole? <laughs> Jeez. Ah, yes, I-15. Are we ever going to get to Salt Lake Trinity Lou? <laughs> no, we're just going to drive this load for another five more days all the way to New Jersey. <laughs> Can you imagine how harrowing and long that trip is for those guys driving weed to the East Coast? No, thank you. Although, I wonder what the pay is for trips that long. <laughs> there was never any events that happened to us driving the load on I-15, but I did see several stings along the interstate there. Cops who had informers telling them that the target was coming down that particular corridor. In the drug industry, couriers walk into these traps like sitting ducks. I hated, hated, 
hated seeing people getting busted and strung out on yard sales like that. It was just way too close to home for me, and I made sure I kept my humility about it all. About 30 minutes out of the city, we pulled out the burner phone to call the distributor about our incoming vicinity. We never texted him. At the end of the trip was no reason to abandon our trade craft. Cops could impersonate the distributor with texting messages. We'll be waiting. Oh, I bet you will, Mr. DEA. Bob wanted to hear the real voice on the other end of the line. We also had little innocuous phrases that were secret codes for alarm. I can't really remember this, any particular phrases now. Okay, I'll see you in a few minutes, Mom. Be sure not to run any red lights on your way home. Wink, wink. Oh my gosh, the cops are waiting for us. Turn this load around. Once we sailed over the northern hill behind the state capitol, we did a lot of different things from there. The first time we unloaded our cargo was in the garage at Tiny's apartment. That apartment was across the street from the LDS Supernacle, just north of Temple Square. Tiny had three coolers that were big enough to each hold a dead body. Throughout our time in the industry, the safe houses changed locations fairly often. Tradecraft. We delivered our loads to numerous safe houses throughout the neighborhoods of the city. These discreet safe houses were usually small, innocuous, but nice. We didn't rent crack houses that would bring attention to us from the authorities or neighbors. As renters, we were good citizens, keeping the house and lawns presentable, well-kept and neat. All the safe houses had garages where we could back the SUV into, close the garage door, unload the product, count and stack the 101 pound bags, and snap on the chains and huge bolt locks that entombed the coolers. Then, quick as a pickpocket's sleight of hand, we pulled out of the garage with an empty car. After we left, the distributor would then make arrangements to go visit his expectant dealers with the weightier packages of product. In turn, the dealers would sling. What do you think that lingo sling means? <laughs> it means to deliver, to sell. Then, in turn, the dealers would sling smaller weight to each of his hoppers, and then the hoppers would hook up with either smaller hoppers or the end user. Do you remember what I told you a hopper was? They hop around and deliver product. We didn't want anyone in the chain of command having a bunch of traffic coming into their places, garnering the neighbors' suspicions, which is why the higher-ups in the chain went to the lowers to deliver the product. Again, tradecraft. At the beginning, when we started driving, our crew was a lot looser, and we just drove the load straight to the safe house as soon as we came into town. Our brokers and distribution crew was pretty small, just a couple of people. It's not like we had 10 to 20 people up at that level. Besides, the distributor needed Bob to be there while he counted the bags to make sure the number of bags we left with from NorCal was the same number we brought back to Salt Lake. Boy, oh boy, I remember a few times when the numbers didn't add up in the Salt Lake end. What a Pain. It wasn't like it was an issue that someone had stolen something or anything. Our crew was very tight and trustworthy. We were family and didn't steal from each other. 
None of us ever had emotions of distrust towards each other. Rather, it was usually an issue that somebody had screwed up somewhere along the way. And even when they counted the bags on the other end three times, occasionally a bag of product went MIA. They just had to figure out where the hell it was. It was usually a problem with figures miswritten on the list, dyslexia with numbers or whatever. But I'll tell you, immediately alarm bells went off in Cali and in Utah and didn't stop till the mistake was tracked down or the product was found. Losing track of a one pound bag of weed might cost us $800 to $2,400, but the opportunity cost was exponential. That's the kind of hassle that's hard to deal with, especially just after wrapping up a week of driving. Later, our crew decided to implement better tradecraft and change things up so most of us wouldn't even know where the safe house that stored the weed was. When we arrived in town with the load, Bob dropped me off at home first because we lived right near the freeway entrance to Salt Lake City. We lived about a half a block from the Salt Lake Temple. After he dropped me off, then he would immediately leave to meet the distributor at a preordained cafe. He would set the keys down on a table and go order a coffee while the distributor took the keys and the car parked out on the street to the safe house. After the distributor unloaded the product, he would bring the car back to the cafe and drop the keys off where Bob was sitting. That way, the left hand didn't know what the right hand was doing. It was that way with the handling of the money too. We had a money safe house also that was separate. This trade craft had its own set of vulnerabilities though. Insurance companies know that the majority of car accidents happen within city limits. When Bob gave the rental car and load over to the distributor, what if the distributor got rear-ended by some teenager or someone ran a red light or a motorcycle came out of nowhere and crashed into the distributor? The list of awfulizing about the distributor taking the car, which was rented in Bob's name, could go on and on for worrywart Bob. The deal is, it's not over till it's over. We never let our guard down till that car came back empty and incident free. Bob always felt the most vulnerable at the pickup in the triangle and then in Salt Lake at the drop off. In the movies, that's where everything can go very badly. In an organization as tight as ours, that's where the snitches would come out. Ultimately, in real life, that's exactly what happened. But I get ahead of myself, don't I? We always cleaned the rental car thoroughly before we returned it. We were paranoid that the back seats might smell like a hint of weed. One time before we left on a trip, we had to take the seats out of the very back to make room for a 200-pound load that we were anticipating to pick up. When we returned the car, we forgot to put these seats back in the SUV. As we returned it, the rental agent didn't notice the third set of seats in the very back missing either, which is why he didn't remind us or make us accountable to go back and get the seats at the safe house. We didn't give it another thought until we went back to the safe house to count money for preparation to go on the next trip. There that beast was, a lovely little gray velour love seat with seat belts and buckles sitting smack in the middle of the bedroom. 
Uh, by then, it was too late to return the seat. We sure weren't going to draw attention to ourselves by trying to do the honest thing and give it the seat back to the rental agency. That SUV was long gone by now, somewhere out in buttfuck Minneapolis or Kansas. The rental agency would have been tied up in its own bureaucratic inefficiency, which in turn would have tied up our own credit limits up in another bureaucratic nightmare. It could have prevented us from renting for a while from any rental agency for another up-and-coming trip. Forget about it. <laughs> Sometimes you just have to choose yourself over honesty and integrity. I'm fine with that. <laughs> One point for us, four trillion for big corporations. <laughs> <laughs> that sofa beast parked itself in the safe house, and the boys actually used to sit on it a lot, till we finally sold it in a garage sale. I can imagine some poor, perplexed rental agent five weeks down the road finally noticing as the OCD agent inside at the front desk frantically screams on the phone at him, I just rented the very last SUV we have to a vacationing ski party of six. They freaking need all the seats. Go find them for crying out loud. How hard can it be? <laughs> He's scratching his head and grabs the manual in the glove box. Where the hell are those two back seats to the SUV? It says here that this thing seats six. Meanwhile, the pissed off customer is screaming at this poor guy too. We paid $3,500 a week for a six-person car, not a four-person car. We made our reservations nine months ago. Nine months. What kind of shitty operation are you people running here anyways? <laughs> it's like the butterfly effect. Some weed courier needed to haul 200 pounds, and now these people can't go skiing. <laughs> And all the shit in between is like, whoa, Nelly. <laughs> yeah. You know what, buddy? Go ahead and take that Crown Vic to go skiing. You'll be fine. Trust me. <laughs> so stupid. But really, isn't that the way it goes? We never let our breath out, never congratulated ourselves, never raised our hands for high fives, nothing of the sort, until Bob walked through that door. Then we did high fives and bums, do a little dance, make a little love, get down tonight, woo, get down tonight. Good job, baby, baby, you're a rock star. No, you're a rock star. No, you are! Yeah! High fives! <laughs> we usually turn the car in later after the delivery was done and things were square. Immediately after that, we would go out to dinner at one of my favorite restaurants, Takashi's. Takashi's is the best restaurant in America. Oh, there you go again, Trini Lou, with all your best restaurants in America. <laughs> Takashi's has the best sushi ever. Spending the evening in this artistic and innovative Japanese-Peruvian restaurant was such a great way to decompress. Sitting under the big green fish and ambient lights of the sushi counter, ordering one delicacy after another and chit-chatting with Takashi and his guys, Drinking a couple of crafts of sake, plenty of shots of vodka and glasses of white wine. 
Finally, after eating the light as air panna cotta dessert, the adrenaline had completely drained out. That's when the big crash came. Baby, we crashed hard for two to three days at least. We had no more energy to even help us get out of bed. We slept 40 days and 40 nights. And on that note, kids, I bid you good night. Wasn't that the greatest bedtime story ever told? The story is almost as good as the Chronicles of Narnia. <laughs> so stay out of trouble. Remember to always drive in the right lane to give me plenty of room to pass. <laughs> and whatever you do, don't do anything I would do. We'll see you later. Bye-bye. Yeah.